I mean, I literally was hallucinating and seeing stuff on the road that wasn't there. And I kept saying to myself, you just need to pull over and, and, and take a break. But again, that army part of me was like, okay, but you can get through this. You can get through this. Come on, be alert, be alert. It's either being know. stubborn or determined, I'm not yeah, sure. Both. Good morning or good evening, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for joining us for the Run the Race podcast. We talk about all kinds of things, you know, really to faith or fitness on a weekly basis with some really uh, fascinating guests. You can find all the previous 68 episodes, or already up to that, on WTVM.com slash podcast. We're on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. You can go to Apple. would love for you to write a review there on the bottom of the page there on Apple Podcasts. And speaking of fascinating folks, um, for uh, our guests for this episode, we have um, a man who uh, I met uh, doing a relay race together, running race. And uh, we'll talk about that and his love for cycling as he's gone all the way through the Alps, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and his uh, Army career, uh, more than uh, you know, 20, 30 years, and learning about leadership and fitness. And now um, he uh, uh, operates a, a company as a program manager where they're working with technology when it comes to the military. Very cool stuff. And he also coaches athletes trying to do uh, you know, maybe an Ironman, a triathlon, a marathon. And so uh, he's a father and a husband. So looking forward to talking to him about all kinds of things including you now bicycling across Georgia and I was there for the uh, finish line for that. I went from uh, Savannah, Tybee Island area all the way back to Columbus, Georgia downtown. I was the MC announcer at the end of that and uh, related to that, uh, there was a song I actually sung a little lyric for uh, for uh, the end of that race. You know, that we had some music going on and having kind of a party atmosphere as the uh, pandemic things were kind of closing down. We're getting to have more in-person races. Um, but uh, I, uh, I sang a song. Uh, it was from uh, U2. Uh, you've heard it before, Where the Streets Have No Name. And it, is, <laughs> it, uh, it has a great uh, starting lyric. So I'll, I'll sing a little bit for you. Goes, uh, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls to hold you inside. All right, so <laughs> that's a little bit of the singing anchor and uh, podcast host for you. That's uh, where the streets have no name. And actually, this is part of a new segment I'm going to try to do on a pretty regular basis. I know sometimes I do food for thought, kind of a something, a news tidbit related to uh, the topic of the week for the podcast episode. This one's going to be called Stuck in My Head. So again, Stuck in My Head. Uh, we will talk about uh, maybe a song that gets stuck in your head sometimes, or a movie, or a quote, something like that. But a lot of times it's related to music and, and all kinds of things. And you just kind of get that song that just kind of runs uh, through your head. And, and on that YouTube song, I look some stuff up. It was written by The Edge uh, for a uh, album from you know decades ago, and it real it really talks about you know how the dreaming of a world where there's not any division, a place where the streets have no name, and uh, it's really about tearing down all those walls that divide us. You know we're not perfect, but we're learning how to get better. And we have uh, we have those walls inside our lives, and trying to tear those down, and so that we're open and free and. That's, you know, a lot of it's with faith as well. I think, you know, as a Christian myself, I need to do a better job of being open and, and helping others and, you know, uh, being with people that are different than me. And, uh, you know, that's what Jesus did. And so uh, that's so important when it comes to our faith. And uh, now to introduce my guest for this episode. I had a chance to sit down with him for about 40 or 45 minutes. Alfonso Auja. And uh, he's known as Al. Uh, I, I got his name right uh, this time, hopefully. He was born and raised in the small Central American country of British Honduras, which is now known as Belize. He went on to uh, get to go to the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, earning his bachelor's in business administration, going on to get his master's as well. And then he uh, spent a career of uh, 30 years in the Army and in corporate America. Uh, still right now is the program manager for Science Applications and International Corporation Program, a multi-million dollar one where they provide oversight of new technology assessments, analysis, and uh, some findings in terms of things for the U.S. Army uh, for their uh, design and modernization and help really to save lives. Uh, he went on to get another master's of health science and sport performance at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions. He uh, retired, by the way, 
as a, a second lieutenant of the infantry. He was a battalion commander as well uh, back in 2003 to 2005. So a lot of, uh, you know, uh, really interesting life in the military. He's also now an adjunct professor for Columbus State University uh, for the last year in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, teaching about the concepts of fitness. Of course, we talk all kinds of things, fitness and a little faith related as well in our conversation today. He is a husband for more than 30 years now. They have two daughters, a 25-year-old and an 18-year-old, so he stays busy with that job as well and has done, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, he did a Trans-Alps bicycle ride, 700 miles, what an adventure, and he did his first Ironman around that time as well, 70.3 Augusta. He now, uh, is, for the last five years, has been a head coach for Rafa Incorporated, where he coaches athletes who want structured, personalized programs to achieve their goals. And uh, hopefully our conversation will help you achieve, achieve some goals as well. Well, I'd like to welcome uh, Al or Alfonso Auja to the podcast. Did I say it right? You said it right. All right. You nailed it. Okay, I like that. Very nice. And uh, Coach Alice, how some people uh, know you. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you you tired from your uh, bike across uh, Georgia? You just finished that a little bit ago, 277 miles. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I, I can recover well from the bike. It's the running, your sport, that really tears me up. Yeah, so I'm, I'm recovered, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, well we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, and also, you know, your uh, um, Army career and, and learning leadership and, and also now coaching others and athletics and also on kind of the battlefield and kind of helping soldiers for the future. Uh, but first, I wanted to start off with a little bit with cycling because I know that's a passion of yours right. since you were younger. Yeah. And so tell me about... Um, um, you know, I understand, you know, you were uh, born in uh, what's now known as Belize. And so uh, did your love for cycling start there and it kind of kind of grew as, as you got older? Yeah. So, you know, in Belize, there's not very many cars and most people get around either by walking or by biking. So I went to a, a Jesuit high school that was about uh, five miles away from my house. And we typically went to school in the morning, came home at lunch for what was like a dinner meal. In Belize, the lunch meal was a dinner meal. And then went back in the afternoon and then came back in the evening. So I had four trips to make back and forth between school every day. And I rode this British-made bike, a Raleigh, with my book bag. We didn't have backpacks hanging on the handlebars, um, you know, four days a week, all year long, except the summer, of course, you know, whether and it was sunshine and beautiful or whether it was wet and rainy. And, and so I just, grew up on a bike basically wow and uh, was that something that you know now i mean you've you've cycled across you know america and the alps all kinds of places and obviously across georgia so um you know how did it go from you know biking as a kid place to place to there yeah so i i used to there was one store in belize that carried uh what what i would consider today race bikes you know and and i remember they always had like the most expensive Bianchi, which is an Italian brand, hanging in the in the store window. And I would walk by like the typical, you know, Christmas uh, time when the kids are looking in the window, just hoping and praying that, you know, Santa was going to bring them something. And I always wanted one of those bikes. So eventually when I was in college, I, I had enough money to, to buy a nice road bike. Uh, this was in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I started riding a road bike. Um, rode it through college, um, but I really kind of, took it to another level when I was assigned up in North Georgia as a ranger instructor in the mountain phase. Uh, and I had a NCO that was in my company and he was a, a triathlete and a cyclist and he brought his bike in one day, which was a, a, a tri bike. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, I've never seen a bike like that. And I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's a triathlon bike. At the time, I didn't even know what a triathlon was. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm sponsored by this local bike store in Gainesville. You know, if you want to get a bike, you know, let, let's go down there. And I'll get you a good deal. So I went down there and bought a Schwinn 754. I still have that bike today. It sits upstairs in, in my pain cave. You, you, don't, you, don't, uh, um, you don't ride it anymore. Well, I, I take it out every once in a while because it's completely functional. Um, I take it out every once in a while, but it's kind of like my, uh, my classic bike, you know, because it's, it's over 30 years old. Um, but that's the bike that kind of took me to another level. And I, I started, you know, riding up in North Georgia, which is really challenging terrain, and started racing uh, up in uh, Atlanta, in the north side of Atlanta, in the Roswell area. There were a lot of races back in the late 80s, early 90s, starting to, to come on board. And 
So that's kind of what kicked off my the competitive side of my my cycling and running, really. Now I've heard of man caves. You call it a pain cave. Yeah. Tell pain me cave. about that. Yeah. So it's got, it's sort of a version of a man cave. So most most man caves, as we think about them, is you know a big TV with you know sound system and a a, a big recliner that you can catch all the Sunday football games. <laughs> For me, uh, uh, the pain cave is a, is a place where I have all my, uh, you know, my indoor trainer, my bike set up, my strength training, my recovery tools. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't have my treadmill in there because it's upstairs and I can't get that up there. But typically, I would have a treadmill in there. And, and basically, that's where you do your indoor work. And, and it's, you know, it's a small little room. You, you got the fan going. You're sweating. Um, you're kind of in your in the zone. You, everything's blocked out. You can focus on what you're doing, and, and obviously, you know if you're going to train hard, there's going to be a little bit of uh, pain to go with it. So it's called the pain cave. Yeah, because I hear you know, <laughs> you know ultra marathon yeah. uh, and, and you know long uh, bike rides, or maybe hundreds and hundreds of miles, or a 50 mile race. People talk about going to the pain cave right. and kind of just. Right getting through that so that's that's for you that's a, a, a sign of affection i guess right? yeah i mean it's 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 uh it's a pretty common term in in the endurance uh, world and uh and you know people that have a lot of indoor training equipment uh that you have it all in this one room and it's your your pain cave it's where you go to to, to suffer <laughs> <laughs> and uh i understand uh, i read that when you were um you know first uh, you know a newer soldier I think you were assigned to Germany and you uh, saw the, the Tour de France. Yep. Um, so did that, was that something that was like, man, you know, I want to do that someday or that looks exciting. Like I want to get back into cycling again. Yeah. So, so they, it was the 750th anniversary of the city of Berlin. And so the Tour de France decided to do two stages in the city to sort of honor the anniversary. And um, I mean, I knew about the Tour de France, but you know, it was TV maybe here and there, but but since it was coming to the to the city, we went out to watch it, and you know, just to see the the big scope of that race. And I mean, I didn't really even know the racers at the time. It was just the event, and I just, I mean, I saw the bikes and the riders, and I'm like, wow, you know, that's the the top of the sport. You know, I, I need to get back to to riding. And I was busy at the time. I was a lieutenant doing a lot of work. But, I mean, I had my bike and kind of was just riding it casually and. Uh, that was kind of again like another point where it's like I got to get back on the bike. I, you know, this is this is the the stuff that that, that makes you really strong and um, and that was a trigger to to get back to some consistent riding. And what would you say to folks? You know, because I mean, you're coaching people now with triathlons and and obviously cycling being one of those aspects. You know, for people that are just casual riders and they say, you know, I want to take it up to the next level. Um, you know, how does that going to require a lot more time in terms of training, or what does it require a better bike perhaps? Or? Yeah, I mean equipment's always going to be uh, important and the more competitive you get uh, and the more you're trying to get marginal gains, the more equipment will be a factor. But uh, as a coach, the most important thing is is consistency. I always tell people when they come to me, say, I don't have any pixie dust to sprinkle on you to make you this great athlete. You're going to make yourself the great athlete that you want to be by being consistent. Um, and training programs, you know, I, I obviously provide training programs, but it's what I really do is provide accountability and I try to do a little bit of teaching, uh, a little bit of coaching, a little bit of mentoring and, and, and get them on the path that, that will get them towards being what I call your, the best version of yourself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I try to, you know, be, give them advice on what equipment to buy, but I said, you know, you, Everybody wants to spend money in an effort to buy speed, but really the speed comes right from from each individual consistently training, um, you know, and, and getting passionate about the goals that you have set for yourself and, and being committed to those goals. And that will that will get you improvement every single day, more so than spending ten thousand dollars to buy some fancy bike that, you know, that you still need an engine to, to move forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to keep moving, that's right? right? Yeah. That's right. You can coast every now and then that, that, on the bike, that, which that's nice. That's yeah. different than running. That's running, correct. you stop, you, you, you stop. stop. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of goals, I know that um, you know years ago, uh, I guess this maybe was at the end of your Army career, um, where you, you spent uh, two decades, uh, and you um, went out and did a Trans Alps. Right. I believe that's eight days, 700 miles, 
uh, 50,000 feet of, of climbing uh, through, I guess that's mostly Europe, right? right? So tell me about that, you know, how and why you decided to do something like that. Can people think, you know, that seems pretty crazy a week of this. Right. Yeah. So by, by that time, I had, you know, really embraced following the grand tours. So, you know, Tour de France, the Giro Italia and the, the uh, Vuelta, which is the one in Spain. And just, you know, they, the, the most challenging part of those big uh, races were climbing in the mountains. That's where the riders that were going to win came forward. So I was always fascinated by, you know, climbing these long climbs where you're just by yourself and, you know, you have to pedal and pedal and you just keep going. Um, so there was a German or a German team here at Fort Benning that were the, the LNOs from the German army and they had done some training in the Alps and we just got to talking. We were riding a lot together. And, got to talking about, wouldn't it be neat if we could make a trip to Europe and do the, the Trans-Alp route, which basically takes you from Germany into Austria and then into Italy. Um, and so those guys started putting together a, a plan and there was a, a group of us um, on Fort Bang that rode together consistently and, and we sort of came together as a group. We even put a jersey together hmm. and then we trained uh, you know, for probably about a year, a lot of trips up to North Georgia. Um, and we flew over to Munich, um, spent a couple of days just there, just to get over the, 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 the jet lag. And then we started this, you know, this day by day trip. Uh, basically we had a, uh, a vehicle that would move ahead of us, get the hotels, uh, set up. And we just rode from one hotel to another hotel, you know, roughly 70 to 85 miles a day. And the, the distance wasn't that bad. It was the amount of climbing that you did. Cause basically we were just going up and down mountains every day, but you know, at the end of the day, we had a lot of camaraderie, we had food, uh, you know, we shared a couple of glasses of wine, talked about what we did. A couple of different guys were blogging at the time. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic experience. Um, sometimes hard, uh, but at the end of it, it was just, you know, rewarding to finish up uh, something like, like that. And this was uh, back in 2011, so you yeah. got you know Germany, Austria, Italy. I mean, do you, when you're biking that much and when you're climbing and kind of your quads on fire perhaps at yeah. times, do you get do you get to enjoy your your surroundings and kind of you know seeing these amazing places? Yeah, I mean there were there were many days where I mean most of the time we would summit a climb and and stop and wait for everybody to catch up. I mean you know this wasn't a competition, it wasn't a race, it was. So you'd get at the top of some big climb and it would be cold in the middle of July, it'd be very cold and you'd have to put on your winter gear to basically to, to descend back down to, to sea level. And, uh, you know, so you'd look around and, um, and then there were some sections that were flat and just countryside. Um, and it was just, yeah, just gorgeous. I mean, you just kind of pinch yourself and go, am I really here? Is, are we really doing this? Um, and you know, the, the friendship, uh, between the riders there was you know that also made it really really fun I mean I still remember we had the Canadian LNO with us too and he had the first iPad I'd never seen an iPad before and he took it with us and he took video and you know it was just it was just yeah it was just a neat experience I will not forget yeah. those that 10 days or so I spent over there yeah. and then a decade later uh, a 10-year-older Coach Al uh, goes out and uh, rides from um, Jekyll Island near Savannah all the way back to Columbus, Georgia. Um, so, and you got you just finished that you know a few right. weeks ago. And um, so, tell me about um, you know is, is this something that you know you've wanted to do? Maybe you've done in the past. And um, was what was it like? At, you know, now that you're a little older. Yeah. Uh, I've not, I, this has been around, as you know, that the race, uh, the ride and run across Georgia has been around for a while. And for whatever reason, I've just never participated in it. Um, but this year, you know, uh, it was after a hiatus, it was coming back. Uh, Kina talked uh, to me about helping out with the bike uh, routes and answering any questions. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I should do this. You know, <laughs> I had done a 200 mile ride before. And I said, this is 277, so this would be, you know, this would give me a PR for distance. And then, you know, we met the, the reps from House of Heroes, which I'd done a couple projects with them before as part of SAIC and, and Mercy Med. And I'm like, you know, these are two really good uh, charities here in our community helping people from uh, this community. It would be good to, to help add my firepower to getting some donations and, and then at the same time I can take it on as a personal challenge and so you know that little fire was lit pretty quick. Um, I also knew though that I wouldn't have time to train for it specifically because I was already training for 
um, an early May season uh, half Ironman, but I figured, you know what, I've got tons of miles in my leg. I'll get through it uh, <laughs> one way or the other. Um, it's not but, a race. Right, it's not a race. Um, it's a race against myself, you know, and so I wasn't too worried about finishing it. Um, it was a matter of how, how hard uh, it would be. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I took it on and um, yeah, I'm glad I did it. And, uh, and I'm glad I'm able to, to get some uh, donations that we can give to two worthy charities here in Columbus. And one of those being House of Heroes, where they um, help do uh, free renovations for uh, military widows and families yeah. and, and veterans that have fought yeah. and for us. And so does that, for, for you coming from a military background right. and still involved in it, um, does that, what does that mean to you to be able to do the bike ride and raise money for an organization that helps these, uh, you know, heroes that sometimes maybe are forgotten? Yeah. Yeah. I, so like I said, I've had, uh, I've done a couple uh, projects with them before that were sponsored by uh, the company I work for SAIC. So I was familiar with the charity and what it does. And it, it is, it is really uh, good to see, you know, people from the community coming out, helping a vet, um, you know, that, that something as simple as, a, as a, you know, installing a new sink in the kitchen or fixing a, a toilet uh, that they don't have the money for or the expertise to do. And, and just a small amount of money can make a big difference in their quality of life. And um, yeah, that, that's close to home for me. And, and uh, I, I feel definitely an attachment to that to that kind of uh, uh, charity work. Yeah, I'm sure you were thinking about that on your 277-mile uh, yeah. bike ride. So did you go into the pain cave? Was this um, you know, very difficult for you, or was it you know, maybe um, you, know, uh, just, you just pushed through? Yeah, I mean, all of the above. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the thing that made it challenging was I started, I decided to start at 6 p.m. instead of 6 a.m., and my thought in making that decision was, you know, ride, riding at 6 a.m. would put me in the majority of the ride in the in the hotter part of the day. I'm not that great in the hot weather, so I'm thinking, what if I start in the evening? It'll be cooler, and it'll be a little bit easier for me. I won't have to worry about, you know, keeping my core temps down. What I did remember very well was <laughs> what it's like to be up, you know, that long uh, doing something physical, and uh, I was T telling a couple of people, I stopped at 150 miles, which was right around two o'clock in the morning, and I had something to eat, had some something to drink, got back on my bike, and between two and four, we call it the witching hour, um, and it's you know a lot of memories from my army days, you know, doing stuff in that that time period because typically everybody is down, and it's a good time to to do something. Um, it's also a difficult time to be alert and awake, and so being on a bike. Um, you know, at that period of time, it, 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 when you, if you remember, if you think of yourself driving down the road and you're tired and you start to that, that nod that you get and then you kind of wake up and you don't know how long you were out, <laughs> that was happening to me on the bike. It's dangerous. Yes, it's dangerous. Um, and the lights from the trail car um, were on all the fluorescent street signs in front of me. So it just created all this color. And with me not being able to kind of focus, um, I mean, I literally was hallucinating and seeing stuff on the road that wasn't there. And I kept saying to myself, you just need to pull over and, and, and take a break. But again, that army part of me was like, okay, but you can get through this. You can get through this. Come on, be alert, be alert. So you're being you know? stubborn or determined, I'm not yeah, sure. Both. Okay. Yeah, both. And, you know, I, so I would stand on the bike. I would get up out of the saddle to kind of wake myself up, then sit back down. You know, until so I'd be alert and awake for a little bit, and then I get into that. You know, it's being on a bike is it's a lot of it's just it's rhythm and, and routine, and you're just going and going, and so it's easy to kind of just get into that rhythm that just kind of takes away your sharpness. And and when you're tired and it's late, it was really easy. So it was a, it was a, and it was getting cold too. That 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 uh, it got down like 55 that night, yeah. and I didn't bring a lot of cold weather gear. I didn't think it'd get cold. But I got through it, you know, the sun came up and uh, we call it the big heat tab. You know, you start warming up, the body starts to respond. And by that time I was around 200 miles um, and we hit that, that section going into Buena Vista and Casita, which has got nothing but hills as I'm sure you know from running it. Mm. And uh, fortunately I kind of caught a second wind and I felt good <laughs> and I was able to finish strong. So bottom line, it was definitely hard. Um, and what made it harder was riding through the night uh, versus, you know, I think starting at 6 a.m., I probably would have been a little bit better off. But the heat and humidity, I, I agree with you there. I yeah. think that that's really what gets me, yeah. you know, especially in this area. Yeah. But, but you just got to fight through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and you were talking earlier about SAIC. So you are the program manager and have been for, I believe, 16 years for the Science Applications International Corporation. That's a, that's a mouthful there, <laughs> uh, which is a, you know, a, a $50 million program. You've got you know, almost nearly 100 employees. So tell me about um, you know, uh, what's it like? You, know, you, you transitioned from being you know, a soldier, being in the Army for two decades. Now you're the program manager there. But you're still doing stuff connected to the military, right? right? Yeah, so the, the uh, SAIC you know, supports a lot of uh, Department of Defense programs. This just happens to be one here at Fort Benning. It lined up well with my retirement in 2005. Um, I didn't think I'd come back to Fort Benning. I'd been here quite a bit because I'm an infantry officer, and this is where all the infantry training occurs. Um, but it, it, it's a job that was an easy transition, you know, because I, I'm, I'm still working with soldiers, still supporting soldier programs. You know, and, and basically what we do is we look at um, all the, the new and emerging capabilities that are coming to the Army that are in some stage of development. And then we, you know, we put them in the hands of soldiers, tell them how to use it, um, and then kind of assess uh, the capability. Is it the right thing? Uh, is it what we need? Do we need to make adjustments to it? Um, you know, if it's, a, it's something as far as the range or the or the, the noise uh, that it makes, and, and we just we write these reports, um, get them to the right people, decisions are made on whether to purchase something. Um, and it, it, early on in my job there, the war was still uh, going on, and, and it really was one of the very rewarding. I was on a program uh, called uh, MRAP, and these were, uh, early in the war, we had all these Humvees over in, in theater and they were getting blown up with IEDs. Uh, soldiers were getting killed or, or hurt really bad. So the Army and Marine Corps started a program to build a vehicle that could protect soldiers. Um, and it was, you know, industry was on board. It was turning something fast, getting a solution fast. Uh, and so we had to do a lot of testing. Um, and I was the, the lead for the, the team here from Fort Benning and did spent tons of time out in Yuma, Arizona, testing these vehicles. Uh, it was a V-shaped hull that would, would deflect some of the blast. Um, and you know, since then, I mean, the Army has bought literally um, thousands and thousands of those vehicles, and, and those vehicles have saved thousands of lives. And so when you're a part of a program like that, that's, that you can see tangible results um, of how well it can contribute to making our soldiers safer, making them more effective, lethal, survivable, yeah, you, you come away from, from a, a day's work there and you feel good about it. Yeah, and the testing is done uh, maybe during, uh, you know, when they're training or even on, you know, uh, deployed or also computerized, or kind of uh, virtual as yeah, well? Or? Yeah, yeah, so we have two, there are two branches in, in, in the Maneuver Battle Lab at Fort Benning. One does what we call live prototypes, so that's an actual system that we're gonna use, a vehicle, a weapon, an unmanned system and that we, act, that we're, it's at the point uh, in the development that we can actually use it and give it to a soldier. And then we have a, another half of the battle lab that does virtual uh, or modeling and simulation. So the technology and the capability isn't ready yet, but we can model the capability and then we fight it on computers in large formations uh, that we can't replicate in real life. And then we provide feedback on how well um, the capability perform. Yeah. And you know you were a, a leader in the army and a leader now with SEIC and the, the Maneuver Battle Lab, and um, so you know, a lot of folks, you know, especially I think during this pandemic, we are all about like how can we improve ourselves? Um, you know, how can I be a better leader? You know, maybe that means being a better father or mother or whatever else. So for you, you know, your two decades in the army and now uh, working with this company that does this testing. What have you learned about leadership and about how to kind of how do I improve myself? Because that's uh, it seems like that's something that people are more um, focused on with everything we've been going through with COVID. Right. You know, I, you know, a lot of people ask about, you know, you'll have a lot of discussion podcasts about leadership and whether people are born leaders or whether it's something that you can learn. And, you know, in my, in my uh, uh, circumstances, I definitely was learned. You know, I, I, I sort of stumbled into the Army, um, didn't really have any leadership uh, skills in high school. You know, I wasn't like a team captain or I didn't lead the, uh, you know, any, any student uh, body type stuff in high school. I was just kind of a guy going through high school having fun. Uh, didn't really have any interest in doing anything like that. And that's why I sort of stumbled into the Army and, and I quickly realized that to, in order to be successful, you had to be a leader. And uh, uh, of course, you know, you, you have, um, 
people that you look up to. And, and I, I would say, you know, mentorship um, has been the biggest uh, discriminator for me. You know, being able to look to somebody uh, as a mentor and kind of their example that they've set, um, you know, not just in their professional life, but also in their personal life. Um, and over the years, I've had like you know, just some great mentors, and, and it's taught me what I need to do when I am mentoring. Um, and I've taken that that skill uh, to every position I've ever had, uh, you know, both when I was in the army and outside of the army, and as a coach. Um, and, you know, so so my coaching philosophy philosophy is teach, coach, mentor. Um, and that's, you know, teaching somebody why they're doing what they're doing. Why, why is it important to go out and do, um, you know, uh, fartlek runs? Or why is it important if you're going to do a marathon to be able to do a long, slow run? Not just go out and do it, you know. Um, and then the coaching is, again, when is the right time to do that fartlek run? When is the right time to do that, that long run? And then the mentorship is to give them the feedback on how well they did, you know, what things need to change, you know, to, to maybe be on a run with them where they're struggling and they need somebody to give them that extra push. So I've taken that philosophy and used that for just about everything I do, including, you know, being a parent um, and, and, and raising and parenting my two daughters. Because you've got an 18-year-old and what's your oldest daughter is how old? Yeah, she's 25. 25. Yeah. So, yeah. So you've, you've, you're all, well, not that your job is ever complete, but like <laughs> they're pretty much, you know, they're, they're almost grown. Right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Haley is my 25-year-old and she's, you know, she graduated college in, in 2018 from UGA and she works up in Atlanta. Uh, you know, she still calls me and says, Dad, here's the situation. I'm going to send you this email. Can you take a look at it? Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm asking my boss this, you know. So, yeah, it's never done. I don't ever see it being over. Um, and the same thing with my younger daughter, you know, who's, who's a freshman at UGA. Yeah. So you, you retire from the Army, but you, you never retire from being Dad. No. no. That, that's, that's full on. <laughs> and uh, you were talking about coaching. Uh, you've been doing that. Um, has it been five years or yeah, more than that? Yeah, just, just about five years. Yeah. Okay. And um, so uh, you, do you coach this, this triathletes or marathon runners or – or cyclists, I mean, is it all of the above? Yeah, so I, I like to say I'm a multi-sport coach. Okay. So I, I think the majority of the people I coach are triathletes, but I, I coach, you know, straight cyclists, straight runners, uh, ultra runners, you know, regular road runners. Um, uh, I do swim coaching um, for people that don't know how to swim or people that just want to get better at swimming. So, yeah, I touch a little bit of everything, um, and I kind of like it that way. Just, it keeps it exciting when you're working with somebody that's, that's doing something different instead of the same thing, you know, all the time. Yeah. So for people, you know, who, um, you know, they are, they go from an amateur runner or cyclist to wanting to do a marathon or an Ironman, something like that. And sometimes, you know, they think, well, I'll just learn it on my own. I'll Google some stuff or right. I'll talk to friends I know, uh, which is kind of the route I've taken. Or if you have maybe the expendable income, the, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks or more a month to spend on a coach, whatever that, whatever plan you decide to go with or coach, um, what would you say to folks about like, how do I make that decision? Is it, is it worth the money? And right. I know I'm asking a coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, of course it's worth right, the money. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a personal decision for everybody. So some athletes need accountability uh, more than they need the training program. Um, and some athletes are independent and disciplined and can follow a program on their own. Uh, so I think it's an individual decision because we each have different needs. Um, and so typically an athlete that comes to me is somebody that doesn't feel like they have the expertise, um, uh, might be too busy to spend time to learn it on their own. Um, and But more importantly, I think it's people that just want accountability. They know that if they've, they've got a coach, they've got somebody that's going to be looking at what they're doing, uh, giving them feedback, um, you know, you can, as you pointed out, you know, you can go download, there's a, a gazillion marathon programs or Ironman, half Ironman, 5K, you can find whatever you want to find um, and, and you can follow that, but that program will never accelerate. Uh, if, you're, if you're getting fit faster, it's going to be the same program you downloaded. It's not going to change for you. If, if you get a niggle and you got to take a couple weeks off, it's not going to stop. It's going to the program is just going to be what the program is. And that's, what, that's the difference between a program and a coach. If you get a niggle and you're telling me you have a niggle, then we can you know, dial back your training and we can talk about what kind of uh, you know, uh, self-care you need to do to, to kind of overcome that. And you, we're working through a challenge together. 
um, with some expertise. And, and I don't know everything. I, I always tell people I, I'm not the expert at everything. I will reach out and find somebody, you know, a, a physical therapist um, and say, hey, what, what do you think? This, you know, this, this runner is having some problems with the knee. We think it's runner's knee. You know, what, what are some key um, exercises that they can do to strengthen the knee? And, so I reach out as much as I need to to get the right expertise, um, and, and that's my role as a coach is to go find that for them, and then to kind of guide them along the path. If if it's a, if it's a, and I always say I mean, there's, it's never a linear linear progression. You're never just going to start at, at zero and then get to 100 without some dips along the way, and and I help them navigate those those dips. Are there um, any comparisons to like you know when you were? Uh, a leader in the army and leading soldiers and maybe you could uh, bark at them a little louder but when you're coaching uh, clients um, to see the growth and to maybe you know you know some people you can push right some people you have to be a little more you know ginger with right, right? yeah it, it's it's everything we do Jason is about people um, and understanding people and and you're different than you know the guy next to you and the guy behind you and the guy in front of you and it's as my role as a coach just as it was as a leader in the army was to figure out what would get the best out of Jason um, and if that's it might be me barking at you but it might be me just putting my hands around you and saying hey man it's not all that bad you know we're gonna get there because that's what you need and so my my role as a coach and as a you know, program managers to figure out how to get the best out of the people that work for me or that I coach, um, and then to just put them on that path. And then if they, they go left or right off the, the line, it's just to nudge them back. Uh, and in some cases, that might be a, a, a serious face-to-face -face talking with them. And in some cases, it might just be, you know, a, uh, it's just words of encouragement. And I think that's always been my strength, is to understand what people need and then to just to dial it up when I need to and to dial it back down. Always keeping it mutually respecting um, and never never veer from that. Yeah, and in you know, your years um, you know, doing that in the Army, but also you know, your five plus years of being a coach, uh, what have you learned about people in terms of like their, their heart or their determination um, you know, uh, wanting to complete their first half Ironman right. or their first marathon or ultra, that kind of thing. I mean, have you discovered even just in this, you know, a sh shorter time of coaching, uh, something about people maybe you didn't maybe realize before? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, some of the clients that come to me and, and have ambitious goals and early on in my coaching career, I was probably a little bit reluctant to, um, to take people on that had really ambitious goals. And I think part of it was just kind of me wanting to feel safe that I could do it. Um, but what I've learned over these five years, that if somebody's committed um, uh, and to that goal, then they can get there. Um, even if they're not the fastest, maybe they're, you know, not the, they don't have the body type that you would look at and go, that person can't do an Ironman or that person can't run a marathon. And I've learned to never underestimate the, the human uh, potential and the drive that people have. If they really want it, they find a way to get there. Um, and that's, it's just, it's joy. It's pure joy to see them come across a finish line when you know where they started and, and what, what they took to get them to that finish line. Yeah, and, and we, we neglected to talk about, you know, how you and I kind of met. I mean, I'm sure we may have kind of known of each other, yeah. but we met. I guess it was last year, uh, we were on a four-man team, a Columbus Day Relay, where we, I think, each each did 15 miles, so right. 60 miles total, right? And we're running four legs, but you're running, you're trying to run them pretty fast, right? That, yep. that three or four miles at right. 5K pace, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that, uh, you know, like in terms of, you know, was that different for you, kind of the, the uh, you know, the 5K kind of going hard each time? Yeah, so I mean, I had done previous to that many, many years ago, I'd done a, a similar relay when I was a ranger instructor up in North Georgia, and, but so that was like in early, early 90s. So it's been a long time since I did a relay. A, a younger one. Yeah, younger man. <laughs> yeah, much younger. Um, and the challenge there is, you know, the, 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 the time in between the leg, you know, because you're, you're sitting around, you know, vehicle moving to the next stop and, and your body gets cold and you got to get it warmed back up. And, and that was a, you know, we were going after it as a race. We were trying to catch people. People were trying to catch us. And, um, 
And you yeah. got that two hours in between, essentially, almost between each leg. Right, right. right. Uh, so yeah, it, it was a little bit different for me, and I hadn't done that in a long time. But you know, I, I just that kind of challenge is just kind of what I thrive on. You know, it's like something I'm not comfortable doing, and now I got to figure it out. And I, I like to call it like that nervous edge when when you know you're going to do something uh, that you've not done before. It's been a long, long time, and you're not 100% sure that you're going to be good at it. It, it makes you just nervous but that nervous edge that, that gets you to really think about what you need to do and then execute it. And so that's kind of how I approach that. And of course, having you guys along was, was you know, made it fun. Yeah, not quite going into the pain cave, but, <laughs> but like, because you're out there for like 30 minutes or right, something right. like that, 40 minutes. Um, and we talk on this podcast as well about faith. And you and I talk kind of off, off mic about how you were raised a devout Catholic and, um, and what you saw um, you know, um, in war kind of change your perspective on things, which it does for a lot. You know, I know, you know, you hear a lot of soldiers have PTSD or they see things and it's like, man, it changes how I see life. Right. And, um, and that's an, an honest thing that I think that probably we could stand to talk more about because right. um, soldiers often just don't want to talk about those things. So for you, how, how did it change things for you for about life and faith? I mean, and this is things that you experienced, what, like 30 years ago or maybe less than that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I was just in Iraq uh, as a battalion commander in 2003, um, 2004, so the start of the ground war, um, and then uh, all the way up to Mosul, which is in northern Iraq. Uh, and, you know, I, I just saw things. I, I went into that period of my life, um, like a lot of young, and I, even though I wasn't that young, I was, you know, a 39-year-old um, lieutenant colonel as a battalion commander in the 101st. I was eager to prove myself. Um, I always make the analogy of, you know, being a soldier is like, like a, being a doctor. You go to med, medical school, but you never operate. You know, you just you get all this training on how to operate and how to do this kind of surgery and that kind of surgery, and it's all in the in the classroom. But you never, you never make it to the operating table. And soldiers train constantly and constantly to to fight, but they never go to war. And 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 so. There's a little bit of a bravado that comes with being an infantryman. Um, you know, who, who, who's who's tougher, who who can do it, and I mean, I grew up in that culture, um, and it's an important culture to grow up into to have that kind of mentality because you're going into into something that's just you know that you don't know what you're going to experience. So I kind of went into into that with this kind of you know uh, this glorified uh, perspective on war, um, and I came out of it a completely different. Uh, perspective after seeing how people suffer um, uh, you know some of that was you know decisions that I had to make um, and some of it was decisions made well above me um, but it, it just it just changed how I saw the world you know being away from my family for a year um, you know uh, stepping out uh, every every day going out in a vehicle uh, not knowing if you're gonna be the guy that's gonna be hit with a IED or small arms ambush, um, and then just so so having the the responsibility to protect uh, and get as many uh, of my soldiers back home, um, and then at the same time just seeing the people in that country and and what they had to go through before we got there and while we were there and then you know years and years after uh, all the things that we take for granted over here you know being able to go home to your family every day you know, to have food on your table, to not worry about getting killed. Um, it just it just makes you think and go deep um, and question a lot. Yeah, and you are telling me, you know, via text that kind of your your um, philosophy, I guess uh, part of your philosophy in life is you believe in the goodness of humanity. Right. So, you know, even seeing all that stuff you saw, the suffering and um, some of the tough decisions that had to be made, um, you still see that there are, that people are in their nature hopefully good. Right, yeah. Yeah, so you know, the, the weird thing about my experience over there was I, I, I just rode these waves where I was in, you know, parts of the country that were just hostile and, and you know, your, your finger is on the trigger and your, your heart's beating the whole time. And then I went to other parts of the country. So I, I was in northern Iraq and, and northern Iraq uh, has a large Christian community. And I had three villages in my area that were uh, Christian. Um, uh, one was Catholic, um, one was Greek Orthodox, and then one, I forgot the, the exact uh, branch. But uh, So I had a responsibility to 
to go to these towns and meet with the religious leaders. They, they held huge uh, influence over the people and information that we would get on things that were happening. Um, so I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to, to priests and clergymen, um, sitting through masks where I didn't understand a single word of what they were saying, but it was good that my presence was there. Um, and, you know, and, and, and sort of being treated, um, you know, special, um, which because I was the, the commander in that area. Um, but I was exposed to, you know, kids and orphanages, and uh, I went to a couple of weddings. And to see in the midst of all this chaos and all this, you know, carnage that people were still living and, and caring for each other. Two people could find love and be married. You know, uh, priests were trying to manage, uh, you know, giving um, supplies out to people that needed it. Like, despite all of this, there was just this goodness in humanity. And it, it was enough for me to, like, hold on to uh, to get through those, those tougher days, um, you know, when the same people that I saw, uh, you know, trying to be living a normal life where there's a, another side of them where they're trying to kill you. Um, and, and they're trying to make sure that you don't go home uh, to your family. And it, it was just this, this polar opposite pulling one way and the other, you know, you know, one day would be this really happy mood and the next day would be just, you know, this tough dealing with, you know, a couple guys getting blown up, somebody losing a leg, you know, um, so yeah, it was just a, a roller coaster of emotions, and and uh, that caused me to you know again assess you know who I was and 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 where I fit into this whole world. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you've seen that light in the darkness yep. and amidst the chaos, kind of like what we're you know we look for now in the midst of everything going on in right. our world and in our nation today. Um, and closing out, you know, you've obviously lived a really a full life of, of you know of cycling and Ironmans and Army and now you know a uh, program manager of this uh, big company and uh, so uh, what's next for uh, Al Auha what's next for uh, Alfonso in terms of like you know are you gonna do some more Ironmans or because or, I know you talked about training for kind of cycling season right yeah so I mean uh, you know I mean coming out of COVID where uh, you know we, we didn't get to do a whole lot um, uh, and I, I just I finished up a, I had just finished up a, a master's degree at the end of 20, uh, 2019, 20, early 2020. Your second one, right? My second one, yeah. And this one was geared towards my coaching career. Um, and so I came out of that, you know, with excitement. And, and then, of course, COVID hit and all the racing went away. And, and you know, like everybody else, I had my, my, my moments where I was like, you know, wow, you know, I mean, we are, are we ever going to get out of this uh, kind of thing? And again, I, if you look at humanity, you know, we've pulled ourselves out of it. We're not out of it completely, but we're well on the way to being out of it. Um, Both I, of us are fully vaccinated. Yeah, so that's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted, to, <clears throat> I wanted to, to race again. It's been a while since I, dur during the time that I was doing my master's, I just didn't have enough time to train, to coach, to, uh, to you know, to, to work, my, my regular work, my, my, my uh, family life. So... I've kind of put tra racing on a back burner. So this year as I'm coming back to race. I'm going to race uh, Ironman Chattanooga in September and Ironman Arizona in November. So I'm going to do back-to-back -back Ironmans towards the end of the year. These are fulls? Full or? Iron, yeah, okay. full Ironman. So 140.6, is that right? Yeah, okay. so a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, and then a marathon. Right. Um, so, so we use the the swim and the bike to warm up for the marathon. Oh, your, your legs are toast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's not like running a, a a straight marathon. You know, you you start tired, and and so it's it's a, it's a it's really about pacing. So, so that's kind of my near term goal. Um, uh, and then, frankly, down the road, you know, I'm I'm 58, and uh, I'm looking forward to to uh, you know dialing back um, in and going to some sort of semi retirement where I can kind of do more for myself. I'd love to get back to Europe and ride over there again. I'd love to travel a little bit more. Um, but, you know, th those are sort of the, the intermediate goals. I, I kind of stay focused on what's right in front. I call it the 50-meter target, right, the guy that's closest to you. And that, that's to get through this year uh, with my personal uh, goals, but also to get all 
my athletes that I have that I'm coaching uh, through their goals, which you know include everything from you know half Ironmans to full Ironmans to marathons, uh, Marine Corps marathon, and other things that that they want to get done. Yeah, well, I definitely, we definitely wish you the best. If you ever need a, a running partner yeah. or, or somebody to, to run a marathon with yeah. to train, like, you, yeah. just, you just let me know. Yeah, okay. you've got the miles in your legs, Jason. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. It was so refreshing to talk to uh, Coach Al, uh, a friend of mine who, again, I just met uh, months ago as part of the uh, Columbus Day Relay, where we did 60 miles as a team of four guys. And uh, again, he likes the, I think, the bicycling and swimming more, but uh, looking forward to maybe running with him in the near future. And uh, um, just, you know, really fascinating stories from war zones and um, really, you know, a, a great leader uh, on and off the battlefield. So I thank him so much for his service and uh, for just, you know, being open and frank with us about the things that he's gone through and hopefully uh, helping others get through the struggles uh, they have as well. Turning now to our uh, final segment of the podcast. So again, we had uh, earlier... Uh, in this episode, we had a new segment called Stuck in My Head. And occasionally we may throw in a food for thought every now and then, but we do have a parting gift uh, to close out with. It's uh, from the Bible. Uh, he talked about the pain cave, right? You heard a little bit of uh, what uh, Mr. Ahua uh, talked about with the, you know, kind of going through the pain and, and kind of pushing through. When well, Hebrews 12, 11 through 13, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So, I mean, you know, it's it's talks in the Bible about strengthening yourself physically, mentally, spiritually, and, uh, you know, being disciplined, whether it be somebody else disciplining you or you being disciplined yourself and accountable. Um, you know, it's it's not fun all the time. Not fun maybe when you're going through that pain of a marathon or Ironman or whatever or going through the pain of loss in your life personally. But, uh, but it is something that you can grow from, and it produces, like it says here, a harvest of righteousness and peace if you're trained by that discipline. So discipline can really bring some great fruit. Uh, thanks to God for that. And a closing in prayer now, Lord Jesus, just thank you for uh, um, being able to be here in this world today and being able to, to spread uh, your word, uh, to talk about uh, being better people. And uh, Lord Jesus, just help us as we go through uh, some painful things in our lives. We all have ups and downs, Lord God, that we look to you and uh, that, Lord God, that you can help us to get through it. Give us the strength, the discipline that we need to be able to come out on the other side stronger and that we look to you for your will and your wisdom. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for uh, being here with us for Run the Race as we uh, run the race of perseverance and uh, finish strong, as uh, the good word says. And uh, next time will be episode 70. We're going to have some great guests leading up to uh, Father's Day. And uh, our last guest, uh, last time around, uh, we had Devin Rodriguez, who's a podcast host himself of the One Life podcast. He gave some great stories from Queens, New York, about uh, pushing through bullies. And, and uh, now as a you know a 20-something-year-old uh, uh, Army officer and leading people himself at such a young age and how he, uh, he runs 100 miles, all kinds of stuff. So you want to hear him. And uh, thanks again to uh, Coach Al for, uh, for swinging by here and talking as well. And I uh, hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of your day and week, and uh, stay cool out there.